Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Stimulating Conversation Dew arrived at Tad's house only a few seconds behind two unmarked gray vans. The vans parked on the street while he drove his Lincoln onto the wet lawn just before the vans unloaded hazmat-suited gunmen. No one parked in the driveway. They needed to keep that open for the Margot mobile. Dew got out and instantly felt cold rain splattering the bald top of his head. He hadn't made it 15 steps before his suit jacket was soaked through. He walked briskly, but didn't run. The two young bucks in full black hazmat suits took care of that. Each toted a compact FNP-90 submachine gun, as did their two hazmat-suited comrades, who took up positions on the lawn. One of the young bucks hit the front door with a hard kick, smashing it open. He went in, followed by his partner. Dew slowly counted to ten, giving the young men time to secure the house. Hearing no gunfire, he walked inside. The two men were in a living room that stood between the front door and the kitchen. Neither of them moved. They had their P90s pointed at a huge, wet man sitting at the kitchen table. A man drinking a Budweiser with his right hand and holding a blinking baby with his left. A tire iron sat on the table. Where it bent 90 degrees... It shone with wetness. A clump of scalp and long brown hair clung to the black metal. A dead woman lay in the open doorway that led out of the kitchen. Dead, Dew knew, because living people's heads just didn't look like that. Living people's eyes didn't hang open with a blank expression, and living people usually weren't lying in a big puddle of their own blood. A dead toddler lay on the ground at the edge of the table, only a few feet from Perry's canoe of a foot. The kid's back was broken, his spine bent in the middle at a 45-degree angle. The place smelled like someone had shit their pants. Dew drew his Colt M1911 pistol. He held it at his side, pointed to the ground. How did you get in here? Back window, Perry said, only about 10 feet up. I can still jump pretty good for a guy who once got shot in the knee. Dew ignored the dig. You crazy fuck. We needed these people. I helped them, Perry said. I wish I could just shoot you, put you out of your misery. Gosh, I am awful miserable, Perry said. So go ahead. He took a swig. You gonna kill that baby? Dew asked, as calmly as you might ask someone to please pass the salt. No, the baby's clean, Perry said. He casually tossed the baby towards one of the soldiers. Dew twitched reactively as the child softly arced through the air. The soldier dropped his P90 and awkwardly caught the kid, who started crying immediately. Crying aloud. The baby hadn't cried when he was sitting with the psycho who had just butchered his family, but as soon as he was safe, he fired up the air raid siren. There's just no figuring kids. Both of you, get that baby out of here. Dew said to the soldiers. 
Get him in a van and keep him there. I'll send a guy to check him out. Doc Braun, real short. You'll know him when you see him. The men left, leaving Dew alone with Perry. Dew started to shiver from his wet suit and shirt. The weather in Wisconsin was much like the weather in Michigan. Both fucking sucked, and both made his bum hip ache. Any others? Dew asked. Perry pointed to a place inside the kitchen. Dew carefully walked to the living room's edge, leaned in a little, and looked around the corner. Another corpse, a man, lying on the floor in front of the refrigerator. A big dark spot covered the crotch and legs of his jeans. He was the source of the shit smell. Three more hosts, dead. Murray Longworth was going to crap a canary when he found out. Three murders, just like that. And Dossie sat at the table, sipping a bud. It would be so easy just to put a bullet in the psycho's head. Perry pulled a second beer from the six-pack and tilted it towards Dew. Want one? The gesture said. Drink up while you can, Dew said. If Baumgartner and Milner are dead, I don't care how important Murray thinks you are. Were those the dumb shits following me in the little white car? Dew nodded. Perry shrugged, drained his beer, then opened the one he'd offered Dew. Control, this is Phillips, Dew said. The microphone in his earpiece picked up the words and transmitted them to a control van some five or six blocks away. Copy, Phillips, the tinny voice said. Status on Baum and Milner. Anyone find them yet? Let me check, the voice said. Dew waited. Dossie took a long swig. I bet you want to shoot me. I bet you want to kill me. He tossed the gold Budweiser cap up and down in his free hand. Maybe I just want to help you, Dew said quietly. Perry grinned and nodded. <laughs> That's pretty good. The tinny voice returned. Baumgartner and Milner are alive. Agent Rebel says they're roughed up a little bit, but they'll be okay. Ambulance en route. Their car and Dossie's Mustang are totaled, by the way. Dew put his forty-five back in its shoulder holster. Dossie smiled. I told you not to have anyone follow me, Dew. I could have killed them if I wanted to. What the fuck is wrong with you, Dossie? We've told you a million times we need a live host. I'm not a soldier, Perry said. Your orders don't mean dick to me. We need information, you murdering piece of shit. These people had information. I have all the information you need, Perry said. He cleared away the beer bottles, revealing a ring-stained map spread across the table. His sweeping hand also brushed aside a clump of hair that had fallen off the tire iron, leaving a long, bloody arc on the paper. He wiped his hand on his pant leg. The next doorway is northeast of here, Perry said. Cross the border into Michigan. Nearest town is called Marinesco. That's where these people were going. If anyone else around here is infected, that's where they're headed to, or they're already there. That's the information you really need, and now you have it. So why would you need these losers alive? Losers? That one you snapped in half couldn't be more than five years old. Sure, Perry said. 
and any knife he could pick up, he'd put it right in your belly. Why do you need him alive? Dew ground his teeth. Because the eggheads say so, that's why. Perry nodded. Right. They need to watch someone suffer. They need to watch someone go crazy. They need to watch someone go through what I went through, right? Dew said nothing. You're stuck with me, old man, Perry said. I'm the only one who can hear them. I'm the only one who can find them. My ass is made of gold. Dossie was completely out of control. Dew understood the kids being messed up, sure. Only five weeks ago, he'd snipped off his own jumblies for fuck's sake. Dew could sympathize with some anger, some depression, even post-traumatic stress disorder. But this? Still, part of Dew couldn't shake the thought that if he treated the infected the same way Perry did, his partner Malcolm Johnson would still be alive. Perry, you have to stop this, Dew said. Margaret thinks she can save these people. How can she do that if you keep going apeshit? She can't save them, Perry said. He drained the bottle in one pull and opened a third. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. I'm all the help these people need. Dew stared at the gigantic man for a few more moments. For the third time, and the second in the past three days, Dossie had located a construct. Dew remembered the horror of that first construct, so hot it melted the snow around it. Watching it light up, the whole thing glowing brightly, then the vision of thousands of creatures coming through the gate, almost pouring into the woods before a dozen heat missiles launched from Apache attack helicopters blasted the thing to bits. That's two new doorways in a pretty short time, Dew said. You think there's more? Perry shrugged. I don't know. I can't really explain it. I hear, what's the word you spy guys use? I hear chatter. More might be coming. I can't say. But you better get it in gear, old man, instead of sitting here with your thumb up your ass. I think the Marinesco one is well underway. Dew pointed at Dossie. You stay right here. I'm going to call this in. Then I'll take you back to your hotel. Thanks, Pops, Perry said. Oh, and have your peons get my bag out of the Mustang's trunk. Speaking of Mustangs, I'm going to need another one. Make sure it's a GT. I'd prefer blue with a silver stripe this time, but I'll take whatever color you can get. I wouldn't want to be difficult. Not only was Dossie a freak, a killer, he was a smartass as well. Dew stared at him, wondering if maybe he should just pull the gun out again and end it. The gun. That brought up an interesting question. You had Baumgartner and Milner down, Dew said. They're both packing. Why didn't you take their weapons? He saw something flicker in Perry's eyes, a flicker that appeared only in the rare, brief instances when he talked about triangles or hatchlings. Was it fear? Guns are for pussies, Perry said. I find a tire iron has more of a Charles Bronson flair. Dew stared for a few more seconds, then picked up the map 
and walked out of the house. As he left, he saw the first of the two Margo-mobiles pulling up into the drive. When Margaret found out she had nothing to work with, she would not be happy. Whipped. The semi's air brakes hissed as the tractor slowed and stopped. The McMillan house wasn't much to look at. Typical boxy three-bedroom, two-story affair, once white paint now cracked, peeling, and speckled, with dark spots of exposed and well-weathered wood. Big yard, old trees devoid of leaves. Two gray vans were parked on the street, and she guessed that the nondescript black Lincoln in the lawn belonged to Dew. The downpour was actually a welcome break. Icy rain would keep curious neighbors inside. A few might peek outside at the commotion, but as long as they didn't try and cross the perimeter, that was fine. Gitch craned around the driver's seat to look at Margaret, his fro bouncing a bit with each movement. Should Marcus and I go ahead and connect the trailers, prep the examination room, ma'am? Yes, Gitch, Margaret said. Thank you. He got out and closed the driver's side door. Examination room was a funny phrase. That's what they all called it, of course, but so far, they hadn't done any examinations. Only autopsies. Not exactly ironic, considering that this two-trailer setup had originally been designed for on-site postmortems of infectious disease victims. If you had an unknown lethal contagion, it made more sense to analyze the corpses where they died rather than haul them to a biohazard safety level 4 lab. No matter how secure the transportation, you were still at risk of spreading the contagion somewhere along the route. A portable BSL-4 autopsy facility, on the other hand, let you not only analyze the body on the spot, but incinerate it as well. A few seconds after Git shut the driver's door, the passenger side door opened, and a soaking Dew Phillips climbed in. Bits of ice clung to his bald scalp and the ring of red hair that circled the back of his head from temple to temple. He looked tired, wet, and pissed off. One survivor, Dew said. An infant boy in the van on the right. Doc Brown, can you check him out? He's not infected. How do you know? Margaret asked. Because if he was, Perry would have killed him, just like he did the three people that were. Margaret sagged back into her chair. They were too late. Again. I'll check out the child, do, Amos said. But I have to wonder why you government types can't control Mr. It Puts the Lotion in the Basket. He put Baum and Miller in the hospital, Dew snapped. Maybe you'd like to try and control a six-foot-five murder who can probably bench-press this whole rig. Amos shook his head. No way. That Elkie scares the foo schnickens out of me. Make sure that psycho is gone from the house before I go in, or I'm not even getting out of this vehicle. Tiny white man makes a good point, Clarence said. Do. Can you guys get the eunuch out of here? Dew nodded, tiredly. Margaret sat forward. No, she said. I want to talk to him first. Forget it, Margot, Clarence said. What the hell is wrong with you? First of all, the man's name is Perry, not the eunuch, not Mr. It Puts the Lotion in the Basket, and not that psycho. Second, there's nothing wrong with me. Something is wrong with you, Dew said. Didn't you hear me say... He just killed three people? Yes, and I also heard you say he didn't kill the baby because the baby isn't infected. He didn't kill the boy who found Baum and Milner, and, I might add, he didn't kill them either. I'm not infected, so I'll be fine. No way, Clarence said. 
He's probably drunk again. Do as he drunk. If not, he's on the way. See, Clarence said. That's it, Margot. You're not going in there. He's right, Dew said. Forget it. Quorum carries, Amos said. Moving on to new business, the chair recognizes Senator Gonzalez from Topeka. All of you just shut up, Margaret said. We can't have Perry killing the host. Someone has to get that through to him. Don't worry about that, Dew said. You can bet the next time he gets a sniff, he'll be in handcuffs and leg irons before we track it down. Amos laughed. Handcuffs? He'll probably just eat them. Handcuffs, Margaret said. Leg irons? After the tortures that man has faced, you think you can get through to him by putting him in chains? He just killed three people, Clarence said. Someone please tell me I'm not hearing this bleeding heart liberal bullshit. Margaret, Dew said, you need to pull your head out of your ass. Stop it, Margaret shouted. All of you, just stop it. We need to figure out why Perry is doing this, and we need to figure it out now. He's my patient. Did you guys forget that? I'm the one who kept that rod from killing him. Hey, I helped, Amos said. Margaret waved her hands dismissively. Yes, of course you did. That's not what I meant. I know that Perry's extremely dangerous. I'm not an idiot. But since we discovered he can find hosts, he's run loose. He could have taken off any time he wanted to, but he hasn't. And yet you keep him isolated from everyone. You're goddamn right I keep him isolated, Dew said. That's what you do with a psycho. Forget it, Margaret. You're not going in there. The action is over, she said quietly. There's nothing but bodies in that house. So now, it's my call. Whoa, Nellie, Amos said. I hear a glass ceiling shattering somewhere. I'm not kidding, Margaret said. This is now an analysis situation, which means that you, she pointed at Dew, and you, she pointed at Clarence, have to do what I say. Am I right? The two men said nothing. Amos leaned forward. I'm afraid that's what Murray ordered, gents. He pointed to his head. Photographic memory and all. Not as cool as carrying a gun, but being smart does have its uses. Dew threw up his hands. You know what? Fuck this. I have to go contact Colonel Ogden. Making sure nothing happens to Margaret is your job, Otto. Good fucking luck. Dew got out of the truck, slamming the door behind him as hard as he could. This is bullshit, Clarence said. I'm going to the back to get body bags, Margaret said. Amos, you come help me. Clarence, if you're so worried about my safety, get in there and tell Perry to stay put. Feel free to threaten him, because that's what you men do, and it seems to work so well. But put on your hood and your gloves before you go in. Margaret crossed in front of Amos to go out the sleeper cabin's passenger side door. Like do, she slammed it shut behind her. Clarence sat in silence, shaking his head. Amos unsuccessfully tried to choke back laughter. Something funny? Clarence asked. Put on your hood and gloves, Amos said. <laughs> if you weren't so pissed already, I'd probably make fun of you. Now is not the time, Amos. I said I would make fun of you. I'm not actually making fun of you. Big difference. Man, I can only imagine what that woman is like in a sack. In the bedroom, I'm in charge, Otto said sullenly. Unfortunately, that seems to be the only place I'm in charge. You're whipped. I don't see you backing her down. Everyone knows I'm whipped, 
Amos said. My wife, my daughters, Margaret. Not exactly in newsflash. But you, Mr. Alpha Male, you go ahead and carry the illusion that someday you'll be able to change the situation. Fuck you, midget, and help me with these gloves. Amos held the glove so Otto could slide his hands inside. Amos made sure the connecting rings snapped home, then ran brown sticky tape around them. Hey, Amos said. Twenty bucks says Dossie kills you. You're on. I'll take it out of your locker if he does, Amos said. Wouldn't look right me rifling through the pockets of a corpse. Whatever. If you win, I guess I won't really be worried about appearances. Both men fitted slim earpiece wires around their right ears. Each wire frame contained a small speaker that fit into the ear canal, a microphone, and a transmitter that routed into the Margomobile's communication center. The sets were on a predefined frequency, same as Dew and the other agents used. They let the scientific team members communicate with one another as well as monitor any communication between Dew and his team. Otto pulled on his black helmet. Amos helped him seal it, then ran a line of sticky tape around the metal collar. Otto held out his right hand, exposing the suit controls mounted in the inner wrist. Amos simply pressed the on button, and the compressor mounted on Otto's belt started up with a nearly silent hum. His suit's heavy PVC fabric billowed up slightly, the result of higher pressure inside. Should the suit suffer a tear, air would flow outward, theoretically keeping any contagions or toxins away from his skin until it could be repaired and decontaminated. I'm off to make 20 bucks. Clarence said. Been nice knowing you, Amos said. See you on the other side. Otto nodded, then opened the wide sleeper compartment door and hopped down. Icy rain bounced off his black suit as he walked towards the house. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Getting his drink on. Perry finished his fifth beer. A blessed buzz started to work its way through his brain. He stood up and walked to the fridge. The door wouldn't open all the way. It was partially blocked by the body of the man who had shit all over himself. Perry put a foot on the man's hip and slid him to the right. 
Inside the fridge, he found another six-pack of Budweiser. Okay, so maybe the dead guy hadn't had any discipline, but at least he hadn't been one of those micro-brew pussies. Holding the fresh six-pack, Perry stepped over the body and sat back down behind the table, just as another black-suited man came into the kitchen. This one carried a pistol. Through the suit's clear visor, Perry saw the oh-so-serious face of Agent Otto. Hey, Clarence, Perry said. You look like a fat ninja. Thanks, Otto said. That means so much coming from a source of wisdom like you. Perry opened the bottle and drank it in one pull. Six down. Five more, and he'd be nice and hammered. Everyone has to have goals in life, right? Otto slowly looked around the room, surveying the damage. Were you drunk when you killed these people? They're not people, Perry said. And no, I was not drunk, but I mean to correct that situation. He opened a second bottle and drained half of it before putting it down. I guess so, Otto said. Listen, man, you know you scare the crap out of me, right? Perry shrugged. That was the way of things. Didn't matter what he did, what he said, they looked at him like he was a monster. So why not live up to the billing? Margaret is coming in here, Otto said. Sure she is, Perry said. Look at all these new toys she has to play with. See this one? He nudged the dead little boy with his foot. I call him Slinky. Save me your psycho jokes, Otto said. Just understand that when she's in the room, you make any sudden moves, I'll put you down. Oh, come on, Clarence. A gun? Don't be that guy. How about you and I settle this the old-fashioned way? Forget it. What's the matter, Clarence? Massa do say you can't play with the white kids? Behind the helmet visor, he saw Clarence's eyes narrow. Go ahead, boy, Perry said. Take a swing. I won't tell on you. Perry hoped he would do it. Otto was big enough to count as a challenge. Not much of a challenge, but something. It would feel good to smash in his face. He had nothing against Otto, really. Except that Otto was fucking Dr. Montoya, which meant he was getting laid, which was something Perry figured he'd never do again. That wasn't a good enough reason to hand out a beatdown. He didn't know what was. I'll pass, Otto said. You can save all that macho bullshit. Only one way you and I are going to dance, and that's if a bullet takes the lead. Oh, that's horrible, Perry said. Did you write that shit yourself? Perry thought he saw Otto smile, just a little bit, but then the stone face slipped back into place. Margaret came into the room carrying a double armful of green bags. She dropped them in a pile. In her black suit, she looked identical to Otto except that she was a foot shorter. Standing side by side, they looked like the adult and child versions of an alien from a bad sci-fi flick. Hey, Otto, your other mass is here, Perry said. Wake up, white people. The Jew is using the black as muscle. I'm not Jewish, Perry. I'm Hispanic, Margaret said. And I've got the Blues Brothers on DVD, seen it about 50 times, so I know that line. Next, are you going to tell me you hate Illinois Nazis? Good God. She knew the Blues Brothers? I also know you're not racist, she said. So stop trying to push everyone's buttons. You're not good at it. Perry wondered if Clarence Otto really had any idea just how cool this chick was. He hated everyone in this fucked up project, 
but he had to admit he hated Margaret a little less than the others. He tilted a fresh beer toward her. You want a beer, Chica? I tried to offer your boy Toby one, but he told me the only good whitey was a dead whitey. Margaret sat down at the table, opposite the little body on the floor. She did it so casually, it could have been a normal scene in any kitchen, save for her black biohazard suit and the corpses. No, Perry, Clarence didn't say that. And no, I don't want a beer, but thank you. You've got to stop this. Stop drinking. Why, what a great idea. Sobriety has done so much for me. He finished the beer and grabbed another. The buzz was really kicking into gear now. He wanted it, needed it to take over, so he could forget. If he got drunk enough, maybe he could sleep. Perry, Margaret said, look around you. Look at what you've done. You killed these people. Why do you all keep saying they're people? They were the walking dead. No, they weren't, damn it. I saved you, didn't I? And what a delightful experience that was. I know it was painful, she said. Perry laughed. <laughs> yeah, painful. By the way, you sure your last name isn't Mengele, not Montoya? Oh, you can just kiss my ass, Perry, Margaret said. I saved your life. Amos and I figured out how all by ourselves, because trust me, your disease wasn't exactly listed in Wikipedia. I know it hurt, but I saved your life. And you compare me to Joseph Mingala? How about instead you just say, thank you for saving my life, Margaret? And you said I wasn't good at pushing buttons. It was funny how clearly you could see emotions through one of those visors. Margaret's eyes narrowed, and her upper lip wrinkled just a bit. Frickin' adorable. Don't forget, Doc. I gave you quite a head start, Perry said. I didn't have any triangles when you got to me, remember? And you can look around all you want, but you won't see any chicken scissors laying around. These people didn't even try. She looked away. Everyone did when he mentioned the scissors. She took a slow breath, then looked at him dead on again. Perry, I learned so much from helping you recover. I can save these people. Why do you think Dew is trying so hard to bring them in alive? Perry looked at Margaret, looked into her brown eyes. She had saved his life. That was true. Most of the time, he wished she hadn't. It was so hard to believe there was a person as good as Margaret left in the world. It was also hard to believe there was a person this naive. You're just kidding yourself, lady, Perry said. You can't save them. I can't, Perry, and I will. We need your help. More than just finding the hosts, you still won't tell us anything about your experience. Do you know how frustrating it is when the one person who survived won't tell you the most basic information? Perry shook his head. I don't talk about that. I've noticed, Margaret said. Look, everyone understands it's traumatic. Believe me, you have to overcome this. I know you don't want to think about what happened with Bill, but... Don't talk about him! Before the words were even out of his mouth... Perry leaned towards her and banged the table hard with his fist. Margaret flinched, eyes wide in surprise and fear. Clarence's gun came up, leveled right at his chest. Perry quickly leaned back. God damn it. He'd lost it. Scared Margaret. That was the last thing he wanted to do. Margaret looked back at Clarence. Put that damn thing down. Clarence lowered the gun. My bad, Perry said. She put her gloved hand on his forearm. Don't worry about it. I'm sorry to bring up awful memories, 
but you've got to start doing the right thing. The right thing? He stood and set a fresh beer bottle on the table in front of her. A gift. She wouldn't drink it, but it's the thought that counts. You're a smart cupcake, Margot, Perry said. But you don't know the right thing here. Trust me, the right thing is to let me help them. Like you help these people. Perry nodded. Exactly. He started to walk out, then stopped and turned to face her. And that suit, Margaret, it's the worst suit I ever saw. You buy a suit like that, I bet you get a free bowl of soup. But it looks good on you, Margaret said. Caddyshack, I own that one too. Perry smiled and gestured towards Otto, who looked horribly uncomfortable at the whole situation. Margie, you're too cool for Mr. Funbags over there. Enjoy your new playmates. He walked out of the kitchen, hoping that one beer he'd left Margot wasn't the one that would have pushed him over the top. He needed to sleep. Sleep. Without hearing Bill's voice. Nothing in this hand. Dew waited in his car while Anthony Gitchum and Marcus Thompson connected the two semi-trailers to make the Margo-mobile fully operational. The two trailers weren't really trailers. They were flatbeds, each carrying a container that was 8 feet wide by 10 feet high by 40 feet long. As standard-sized cargo containers, the things could be easily transported by rail, by ship, or even by air with a cargo helicopter. Once combined, the two containers made for a highly portable BSL-4 autopsy facility. Painted blue and scuffed up a bit to make them look rusty and well-used, they didn't rate a second glance on the highway. But it was only the outsides that looked beat up. The inside areas gleamed with the pristine whiteness of a high-tech hospital. Three months ago, there'd been no such thing as a mobile lab rated for BSL-4. That was as bad as it got. Ebola, Marburg, Superflu, shit like that. Some company had had the trailer on the drawing board. Margaret found out and insisted it was just the thing for the crazy, secret work of Project Tangram. Dewitt agreed. So had Murray, who'd funded the rush job on a prototype and then ordered two more. At a this-week-only sale price of $25 million each. Fuck it, Murray had said. It's only taxpayers' money. The things you could do with a black budget. When the trailers were delivered and the team checked them out, Amos had called them the Margomobile and the name just stuck. Big dollars or no, Dew couldn't argue with Margaret. The trailer combo was a bargain at any price. The BSL-4 tents Margaret had used at various hospitals worked, but you needed to set them up, you had to deal with the concerned hospital staff, local media, etc. The Margomobile solved that. You could take the full BSL-4 lab right to the bodies and do what had to be done. The thing even had a microwave incinerator, for fuck's sake. One-stop shopping, from body acquisition to disposal. The two trailers set up in parallel. From the rear, the right trailer, Trailer A, had normal cargo doors. Opening those up revealed two more doors. The cargo doors were just a front. The door on the left led into a small computer center, 10 feet long by 5 feet wide. One thin desktop ran the length of the room. It supported three keyboard and mouse combinations that rested in front of three flat panel monitors mounted on the walls. Add three office chairs and you were in business. Other equipment provided secure encrypted transmission to anyone in the trailer's frequency or could plug into a full NSA-caliber satellite uplink. Voice, video, data, whatever you needed. 
the communication equipment was originally meant to provide a secure connection to the CDC or the WHO, but it worked just as well for an old CIA spook. The right side door led into a claustrophobic three-foot-wide airlock that ran 10 feet into the trailer before it reached a second airtight door. That door opened into the 8-by-10-foot decontamination center. In there, dozens of nozzles shot out a high-pressure combination of chlorine gas and concentrated liquid bleach, lethal to anything from a microbe to a man. Once you got through decon, a final airtight door led into the main area, an 8-foot-wide, 20-foot-long autopsy room, an area about the size of a typical living room to deal with the deadliest pathogens the world had to offer. The left-hand trailer, Trailer B, held a narrow dressing room with lockers for the hazmat suits and gear. That room wasn't part of the airtight area. You had to walk into the dressing room, get suited up, then walk back outside and go through the Trailer A airlock to reach the autopsy room. Trailer B also held air compressors, refrigeration units, filters, generators, a nine-slot cadaver rack like you'd find in any morgue, and a clear-walled containment cell designed for living hosts. That cell held two autopsy trolleys side by side, with just enough room between them for someone to walk in, turn around, and walk out. If they did have to use this cell, the host or hosts would likely be strapped down to the trolley. Safety and secrecy, not comfort, were the rules of the day. A collapsible covered walkway extended from Trailer B and connected directly to the autopsy room of Trailer A. That way, they needed only one decontamination area to access the airtight areas of both trailers. Getch and Marcus were in the process of connecting the accordion-like walkway. Do like those guys. Marcus was the kind you'd want by your side in a firefight. Getch, not so much, but he always had a smile and a laugh, and on a long, isolated assignment, that was just as important as being able to shoot straight. Dude checked his watch. The connection process usually took them 10 minutes. Now it was 11 and counting. He'd give them some shit about that later. Gitch opened the door to the computer center. Dude got out of his Lincoln, braving the rain once more to dart inside. He sat down at one of the computers, typed in his username and password, then spread out the blood-smeared map on top of the keyboard. He grabbed the secure phone and punched in a memorized number. He still found it odd that he could dial Colonel Charlie Ogden in the middle of a field engagement and get him every time. The wonders of a high-tech army. Company X, this is Corporal Cope. Dew Phillips, get me Ogden. Right away, sir. Dew waited. He held the phone with his right hand while the fingertips of his left traced an as-the-crow-flies line from South Bloomingville, Ohio, to Glidden, Wisconsin about 600 miles. Project Tangram had several V-22 Ospreys at their disposal. The Ospreys were perfect for their needs. They could take off and land anywhere, no runway required, courtesy of a helicopter engine on each wing. Once in the air, those engines slowly tilted forward and the helicopter became a twin turboprop plane. Seeing as each Osprey could carry up to 24 soldiers and do about 300 miles an hour, They were invaluable for moving Ogden's troops from point A to point B. In a real logistical pinch, the Ospreys could even haul the Margomobile trailers, one trailer per bird. Ogden here, said the familiar voice. What have you got for me? You first, Dew said. Did you take out the construct? Would I be talking to you if I hadn't? Dew shook his head. Charlie Ogden wasn't much for pleasantries. 
We've got something else, Dew said. Punch in Marinesco, Michigan, on whatever fancy map computer you've got there. Ogden barked an order to his staff. Got it, Ogden said. We found another construct there. There was a brief pause. Okay, things make more sense now. How long till you can be there, Charlie? We've got our Ospreys close by. With mid-air refueling, maybe two and a half hours. What about the two companies still at Fort Bragg? I can send them now, but they don't have Ospreys and they're too far away for helicopters. We could get them on C-17s and drop them right in near the zone. Say, 30 minutes to get wheels up, 90 minutes to fly and jump, 15 minutes for them to gather and move in. Either way, we're looking at two and a half hours best case, three hours more likely. You got pictures of this thing? We're bringing the satellites online now, Dew said. We should have something at any moment. I told the squints to send you pictures as soon as we get them. Understood. Listen, I think South Bloomingville was a feint, designed to draw our attention while they set up at Marinesco. What are you saying, Charlie? Dew asked. These little bastards are using high-level tactics? They didn't defend themselves. When we closed in, they destroyed the construct, killing themselves in the process. And I think it was a prop. A prop? Yeah, like fake planes on a fake airstrip designed to fool satellite intel. It heated up like the other gates, but it was thinner. Just enough material to have the right shape and the right behaviors, not enough to be functional. Dew felt a helpless feeling spreading through his guts. So if this Marinesco gate is already hot, if you can't get there in time, then what? Ogden's voice dropped a little as he spoke to someone near him. Cope, order the FAC to this location. Dew heard a distant, Yes, sir. Charlie, Dew said, What the fuck are you doing? I just deployed the FAC, the forward air controller. It's an F-22 Raptor fighter, fast as hell. It'll acquire the target and transmit coordinates to the Strike Eagle squadron. The F-15s? You're dropping fucking 2,000-pound bombs on it? It's Michigan, not fucking Fallujah, Charlie. Why can't we use the Apaches like we did in Wajamega and Mather? Depends on if we can get them there in time, Ogden said. If I send the Apaches now, it's a two-hour straight flight. The Eagles do Mach 2.5. They'll be there in 25 minutes. Dew's cell phone buzzed. He checked it to find a text message that was nothing but a 16-character code. I got set pictures, Charlie. We just got them, too. Cope, up on the screen. Dew shoved the map aside and typed in the code. A series of thumbnail images appeared, some in color, some in black and white. Dew clicked on the first black and white image, blowing it up to fill the screen. Most of the picture showed the black, irregular patterns of dense trees. The center of the image, however, showed a fuzzy white symbol that had come to represent the unknown terror of the infection. White meant that the gate was already hot. I'm ordering a full strike, Ogden said. Taking that damn thing out of the game. Hold on, Charlie, Dew said. The area looks pretty unpopulated. We don't have any intel on the residents. We get some planes to make a pass, see if there's any people around. Phillips, I don't give a fuck if the gate is built right on top of a compound full of orphans and nuns. I am taking it out. Charlie, come on. You're talking about 2,000-pound bombs on U.S. soil. We have to get approval from Murray on this. No, we don't, Ogden said. I have authority from the president to make any necessary battlefield decisions up to option number four. That one has to come from the big man himself. Other than that, it's my call. 
But that order came from President Hutchins. Gutierrez probably doesn't even know about it. I have my orders, Ogden said. We have to strike immediately and with force. Nice work uncovering this location, Do. All I can say is thank God we've got Dossie. He's the only thing keeping us in the game. Ogden out. Charlie broke the connection. Dew put the handset back in its cradle. Thank God we've got Dossie. Imagine that. The kid was 12 donuts shy of a baker's dozen, and he was their ace in the hole. What would old Charlie have thought if he knew that Dew had almost shot Dossie in the mouth with a 45? Sorry, Charlie, our ace in the hole has a hole in his head. Dew rubbed his face with both hands, then picked up the handset again. The explosion caused by the Strike Eagles bomb run would be huge, probably even register on seismographs. Covering up such a thing would require spin, obfuscation, and lies. And for something like that, there was no one in the world better than Murray Longworth. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.